0: Oh, I meant to ask you guys, I wanted to mix up the intro for the new year. And I was thinking of a few ideas, but I wasn't, I'm not really sure. Like I was thinking we should do something where there's an intro and then the music comes on and then we say who we are. What should that look like?
1: Like we say...
0: What would that look like?
1: We should probably say who we are. And then you could do like a little musical interlude.
0: So a lot of shows will have like a little Mm -hmm. after the interlude. Great. So... Just trying to think of, sorry, we're always trying to think of some ways, like how we could do something a little different for the new year, just kind of mix it up.
1: Maybe we should make that a bit at the beginning.
0: What should that look like?
1: Except I don't have any ideas.
0: No, yeah. I had a few ideas, but now I can't remember what they are. So
1: (laughs) new intro.
0: Just kind of mix it up.
1: Next week.
0: What would that look like? Yeah.
1: But Heidi has no ideas. David forgot his ideas. Yeah. Sean.
2: I'm trying to remember (laughs) what it sounds like now. It's not helpful to us at the moment. We should just say all of this.
0: The music starts and then it fades into us saying.
2: Wait, what is it? Right. And then it fades and then we're talking. Okay, yeah, but we would talk and then break. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We'd have like a thing probably that just David says and then.
2: You're listening to, And then it would be a long, yeah. Do you remember the A-team? Yes, we remember the A-team. Where there was that long sort of spoken preamble. And then uh, it was like, "If, if you're in trouble and no one else can help, maybe you can hire The A-Team. And then the theme song would oh, come in. Ghostbusters. Now that's my idea. Oh, there you go. We could do MacGyver. Yeah, yeah.
0: Throw some MacGyver in there as well.
1: Oh, how about oh, It's a go. Beautiful mm. Day in the Neighborhood. There we go.
0: So we could do Mr. Rogers. Okay.
1: <laughs> There's so many ideas now.
0: We could do the Bonanza, Riding in on the Horses. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. I don't know what the copyright is on using like five seconds of that music. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, we're going to have to come up with some ideas. But uh, let's, uh, let's let's just start this podcast. We'll just go from here hey there i'm david kern
1: i'm heidi white
0: and i'm sean johnson and yes this is close reads a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing jane austen's novel persuasion it's the first book of 2023 here on close reads yes it is a new year happy new year to both of you how's the uh first two days of the year treating you very well so well Great. So yep. that's a great that's track all. record for for starting the year. That's all we got. We're I, doing great. I hope, I hope yeah. it stays that These way. These are the resolution yeah.
1: days, so everyone's a little bit grumpy.
0: Okay, I was going to ask you about this. Do I you forgot. either of you have My resolution is to remember. Um <laughs> do either of you have I guess we kind of already talked about this a little bit, but like a resolution that you are most excited about for the new year and then a resolution that you are most dreading in this new year.
1: I'm doing sugar-free 23.
0: You're kicked off the show. This is nonsense.
1: I So I'm dreading that. I will have birthday cake. And I'll give myself a couple of exceptions, but only a couple. Otherwise, Mm. it's just exceptions. And what's not an exception is like birthday parties, because that's just all the time. Right. right? There are always things to go to that. So
0: what are you going to do in the month of December?
1: I don't know yet. It's a long what are you going to do I'm when you're here it.
2: one month from now? She'll be well, off the wagon by then. That's how resolutions work. No, I actually
1: keep my resolutions. I really do. The only resolution I never keep is the one I make every year about doing my laundry better because I'm horrible at laundry. Like, I'm like so bad at like Do you want things to be
0: more clean? you yeah, said you well, want to do your I laundry better be
1: better at it Like, like schedule I want, wise or yes, like you want to I be want more consistent to, like, be okay better okay. at getting laundry done so i'm trying to imagine <laughs> how
0: like how bad could you be at laundry like in God. terms better. of getting things but, the, <laughs> but like there's a difference that like, getting things clean better could yeah. mean you want things to be cleaner or it could mean you no, want to be no, consistent no. it at just it.
1: means i want to do it at all. It'd be funny ever. if if
0: Heidi was like, yeah, uh we went to, we just went to England and saw Harry Potter, but we actually don't have a washing machine. No. Well, right now
1: we kind of don't. It broke. And I'm like, well, I guess all those clothes I'm gonna throw away in my new ones because I don't <laughs> yeah, two, I'm never gonna two, take care of this problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. So Sean, what about you?
2: I I really did forget all about making New Year's resolutions. We have a baby due in February, and yeah. so I'm my, baby. my only resolution was to have a baby. My I have a new resolution right now. The good one. I'm doing sugar substitute free 23.
1: Oh, so sugar yeah. full 23. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: everyday
1: yeah. sugar 23.
0: Yes. <laughs> my resolution for 23 is uh, sugar moderately 23.
2: Oh, okay, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah, You're... I don't really know. You're how winning. to make that you win make that rhyme <laughs> yeah.
0: better than moderately <laughs>
1: moderately in and
0: 23 one yeah it's it, so. someone who's listening is like shouting a better word right now right. as they're as they're uh running on their treadmill and trying to keep their own resolution yeah. harmony uh,
1: 23 yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh what do you do you have one that you're so Heidi what did you say the one is that you're excited about though
1: I didn't say um didn't,
0: do either of you have one that you would, would fall under that category?
1: Yeah, I am going to. I I'm like really big on New Year's resolutions, as you can imagine. Although I call them goals, because a goal is something you can meet. Like I was just having a conversation with Jack, and he's like, "I want to be closer to God in 2023," and I'm like, "I love that. That's that's great. But what are you gonna like?" How will you do that? Right, Right. like you can't measure that. So how? And so then we came up with like. Well, it it could be how he feels.
0: Does he feel closer to God? That definitely could be like right. Which, when you're
1: 16, is fair to like pursue.
0: I mean, I'm being a little sarcastic. I know. know.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. you know, and Jane Austen is shaking her head in her grave at everything (laughs) at at that idea.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. But
1: so anyway, for me, can you
0: shake your head when you're covered in dirt? Well, the dirt's not inside the box.
1: I feel like if you're the box, doing well, anything dude,
0: from the grave, a box a box from good. like 1820 was is not still a box. Maybe she's in a marble box or a, a
1: sarcophagus.
0: Yeah. You guys think Jane Austen was buried in a sarcophagus?
2: Well, well I,
1: we're, we didn't say we thought that.
2: We I don't know. Don, <laughs> you're <we said> hypothesizing. <laughs> okay. Yep. Okay. I've All never right.
1: seen her grave. It's in Winchester Cathedral.
2: Anyway. I I have really? seen oh. it, but they didn't get I didn't get a a good close up oh. look you know is it a sarcophagus you, you didn't see the relics i think it's just under the floor
1: yeah she wasn't <laughs> yeah. famous then she yeah, was yeah. well known but not famous i am going to behold be something beautiful every day sacred Whoa. or sacred and secular that's my goal some like even if it's just a little thing like i'm going to follow keep following goldberry art on instagram and bethany posts something beautiful every single day
2: she better now a lot of yeah, pressure, pretty much. Yeah.
0: Otherwise, Heidi's things like it's that. Like, if she forgets, <laughs> Heidi's is like, all screwed <laughs> on the
1: internet. <laughs> you
0: have to look out the window, uh, Sean. What do you? Is there one you're excited about? Uh, have you a didn't baby. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well, having a baby. Yeah, well, yeah I can't but, wait to behold
1: yeah. that beautiful baby.
2: Can I. When's the due date again? February fifteenth. That's right.
1: You yeah. are like walking on the wild side, coming out to that close reads.
2: Yeah, no, I know. I I keep asking Heather, "Are you sure about this?" She says, "Oh yeah, you'll be fine." Oh, you're such a good wife. Are yeah. you driving? I, I am to, driving. I haven't even talked I, about this. No, I'm driving primarily so that I have the freedom to lead, bolt in the yeah. night if need be.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, everybody who's listening, we're getting we're getting together the first weekend in February um, to to plan and uh to to talk about all things all the things we want to do for you this year so um I guess we should get down to it though this is our first book of the year and it's a book that we have we have circled as one we have to do for a couple of years at least now uh it's been a little while since we did a Jane Austen novel I think the last time would have been when we did Sense and Sensibility with Karen Swallow Prior, which would have been three years ago now 18 or 19 I didn't check that um but this Persuasion was the last novel completed by Austin. It was published in December of 1817 uh, along with, I did not know this, along with Northerner Abbey. Yeah. So six months after her death. This is a book that we did a watch along recently of the terrible movie from last year. Oh, uh, so if you, if you want to uh, wait, that was based on this relive book. that. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was <laughs> Yeah.
0: based on might be. Generous might That's be a right. generous term, uh, I have multiple friends whose claim that this is their favorite Jane Austen book, so so for both of you, how many times have you read this? Where does it fall for you as far as i mean I, you know Austen's for all of us is a favorite, so I'm just curious where it kind of ranks for you in the in the austin canon. How do you what was what about for you?
1: I've read this book several times, and it is my i it's just so hard to compare anything to pride and prejudice. Probably Pride and Prejudice is marginally my favorite. Like if I had to go to a desert island and can only bring one Jane Austen novel, I don't know. I might bring Persuasion because it's all about waiting. Um <laughs> yeah. but anyway, I it's tied-ish with Pride and Prejudice. David got oh, okay. a tie on his top five.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: get a Jane Austen tie. So it's tied with Pride Why and Why is Prejudice? everyone making
0: such a big deal out of this? It's like I never it's an easy, you can do tie whatever you want. Yeah. Um if soccer has taught us anything, <laughs> that's right.
1: Fair. Anyway, I really, really love this one,
2: Sean. Well, for me, it's a six-way tie, <laughs> six and a half-way tie. Uh, no, I, I've read this one quite a few times, and uh,
0: ties can only be between two things.
2: Oh, you know, fair enough. I guess uh, you can have three two-way ties <laughs> if you want.
1: <laughs> ties can only be between two things. But what if what if
2: What if five horses cross the finish line at exactly the same time? The odds
0: of that happening are so extremely low that uh, the computer, I mean, like, truly the odds are one in a bazillion. So I wouldn't (laughs) concern yourselves with it. Truly a a bazillion. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there, there'd be a camera that would like this be able to tell read. the, the whisker on the end of the, the end of the horse's
2: nose beat the other horse. So, I don't know, about not it. too worried. I feel like we,
1: it. we have derailed. You yep, really yep, like already?
2: We, already. Never, we never, we never, yeah. got
0: railed in the first place. I
2: it it's a long story that I can't entirely explain, but Persuasion was my first Jane Austen novel, uh, which is a weird hmm. way to come to Austen, probably, and unusual. Uh, and for many years, I have called it my favorite though I aspire maybe this is one of my resolutions ongoing <laughs> uh I aspire to make Mansfield Park my favorite because I think it might be the best but I totally agree with that but I really do love persuasion
0: yeah. man those are some that's a hot take yeah yeah, that's
2: right
1: I think Mansfield Park is objectively the best and I think that persuasion is the second
0: best
2: yeah I think they're very similar but I like persuasion better yeah. too. Yeah.
0: Mansfield park is longer and that may mm. maybe one day we'll have to do right. that on the bonus. It's the easier bonus show. Uh,
2: to, to, well, it's easier to finish presentation. So maybe that makes it <laughs> easier to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I think, so I was thinking about this. I think I've only read it once and, and it, I don't remember what I said about the, in answer to this question when we were doing the, the watch along, but I don't remember it well. Mm. It's probably been a long time. Now, now I've read Pride and Prejudice a bunch of times, Sense and Sensibility a few times, and I've never finished Mansfield Park. To be honest, it's like a, you know, a gap in my 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 bona fides. So I'm excited to do this to to dig into this book. How would you say that persuasion is similar and different to to the to say Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, the, the two books that most people will have read i would say that most bookish people have read those two and then the other ones you know they might get to them eventually but they're not as like pride and prejudice is got to be a top 10 most read book ever right like not in terms of novel i mean it's it's you know it goes on the mount rushmore of novels probably yeah um so how does this one you know compare and contrast how, do, how, does it, how is it similar? How is it different, for, especially for people who have never read it before? If they've read those other two and they haven't read Persuasion yet, what should they look for in terms of similarities and differences? Sean, give us one. let do some
2: similarities first. Well, they are novels of manners set in England. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is, it is uh, essentially a romance about a heroine, who uh, may or may not end up with uh, the right man. The Sounds end. familiar. That's all of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the I think the the biggest difference is what makes it unique of all of Austin's finished novels, anyway, and that's that the heroine is older uh, and has had some disappointments in love in her past. Uh, Whereas the rest of the heroines are younger women uh, and are kind of in the throes of their first real romantic attachment or attachments. They tend to be less experienced and uh, especially, you know, Elizabeth Bennett is really quick to, to judge and come to conclusions. Uh, Anne is very, wise she has uh, a decade or more on her fellow austin heroines and it shows
1: right i think for me a similarity is as sean said our our heroine our central character is a um is a wise young woman an ideal type uh And we have that in Eleanor, Incense and Sensibility, Elizabeth Bennett, um, versus some of her other novels, like Emma, Northanger Abbey, have a central character who needs to grow, right? And that's the trajectory, the character trajectory of the novel. But uh, with Anne Elliot, we have probably as ideal a type as. I think she's the most, except maybe Fanny Price from Mansfield Park. <laughs> um, and uh, but I think that persuasion is the most melancholy of her yeah. novels. it has this depth of um disappointment that it plums instead of expectation and hope and and that makes it, I think, probably her most mature novel um even though Anne is an ideal type the perfect woman so to speak she's also a woman who has suffered um and that sets her apart um from every other major novel or excuse me major heroine except for Eleanor Dashwood
0: do you, do you think it's as as funny as, say, Pride and Prejudice? No. I no. think it's
1: witty. I, it has plenty of irony, plenty of satire, but it has this tone of melancholy that lingers throughout hmm. the novel.
0: Is yeah. this, so is she trying to do something different than what she was trying to do in Pride and Prejudice Then you think? Like, is she trying to make a different kind of point or a different kind of, she'd often talk, people often refer to her as, you know, novels of manners with a mm-hmm. satirical bent and things like that. So is she trying to make a different point about the culture that she is caricaturing or satirizing.
1: Or maybe making a point from a different perspective, um, maybe that, that same point, it still focuses on, you know, social conventions, marriage, inheritance, those kinds of issues in the landowning gentry of England. Um same kind of lifestyle, same kind of questions, same kind of, you know, sly winking and finger pointing and all that. Um, but from a di- from from a different age and a different time in the life of the care. Instead of instead of it being Anne Elliot at 19 when she meets Mr. Wentworth, it's Anne Elliot at 28, having been persuaded to abandon her one chance at love. Right. And that is a very different perspective from Elizabeth Bennett or Fanny Price or Eleanor or Marianne or Emma. Um I think also her Jane Austen, she wrote six novels, but or six and a half, um, <laughs> as Sean said. Um, but she did one every year until she, for. She published so many in a short amount of time that Persuasion, to me, seems like the first one that's a major step forward. As an author, I would have loved to see what she would have written after Persuasion, which, of course, we'll never know. um, Because she's actually doing nothing in her grave, whether even shaking her head at David's resolution. (laughs) Um, 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 The other novels seem to be written by an author in the same kind of place and persuasion seems like a step forward in her craft for lots of reasons, not just the characterization of Anne, but other aspects of her writing, the form of her writing and all that and her style and all of that. Um, So I don't, Sean, do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think I do. And I wonder though, I wonder though, if, uh, and there's, it's hard to know for sure, but I think it, it's possible to speculate that some of the changes that we see in this novel could potentially be the result of her sensing the end of her own life. Right. Uh, so so there is this, uh, maybe she's turning an artistic corner and who knows where she would go from there. But also, uh, I mean, she she was sick with the illness that finally killed her for a while before she succumbed and even before she made it public or you know widely known that she was um uh, even very ill. And this they seemed... think... yeah go ahead. Do...
0: they think now that it was probably some kind of a cancer, right? Yeah, I think so. There's an Or
1: Addison's disease. Addison's yeah, I was gonna say there's, there's a name that they get or to Ho- Hodgkin's yeah. lymphoma is another one.
2: Yeah. We just yeah. don't know. Yeah right. Uh and and you do see and so maybe we should just get this out of the way so we don't ever have to be tempted to do it again, because there, uh, there's a lot of bad biographical criticism that can be done uh, if you know something about the author's life that tells you something about the book. But uh, she is also, at the time that she's writing this, entered into her own, by the, com- by the conventions of the day, into her own spinsterhood. And so there are also questions of contentment. There are Anne Elliot is not the only character faced with a, an unmarried existence. there are There are women who have had failed marriages or lost husbands and men who have lost wives or think that they have missed out on on love. And so lots of people in the novel are contemplating what uh, their life can be and what the purpose in their life can be apart from. Uh, you know the vocation of married life. Uh, and so I think she's she's dealing with that too. And I also think that questions of rank and class and uh, democratic virtues are treated differently in this novel. Uh, they're more nuanced and complicated than in in the others. Uh, sometimes it seems like Austin is making these authoritative authorial statements uh, that seem to contradict what other novels have appeared to argue for as far as uh, how much the aristocracy matters and what's the value of tradition. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting differences in this one.
0: Sean, for you, where is Austin in your favorite writers list? I mean, great you know, we know there's Graham Green's high. Graham Green, that's
2: right. Uh I mean she's she's up there. Uh I yeah, I would I would put Austin top five, maybe. I really do love Jane Austen. I have a great just, affection just, for her. I'm just curious.
0: Yeah. So Heidi, you talked about how this is a more melancholy book. It's not as funny. The, there's a lot. Of, there's some stylistic differences. You said you did say it's maybe a much more mature novel, but is that enough? Is the maturity factor enough for it to be the fa- you know to to be a favorite for so many people? I guess the question I'm asking mm-hmm. is, given that it's less funny, given that it's uh, maybe a little bit sadder and different things like that, why do you think it's so? Um, Beloved by by so many right.
1: people. I think it's a great question. I, I think there's a couple of reasons, and there's probably more. There's probably as many reasons as there are people who love this novel. Uh I think it's Austin's <laughs> most romantic book. Um and it is the story of a here's here's Heidi getting going. This is it's the story of a dutiful woman who must become a desiring woman, right? And that is very romantic. It's a very romantic trajectory. Um, there is a letter at the end that is one of the most beautiful love letters in all of English literature. Um, and I I think lots of people just love that. And it's a novel that because it's a little bit less fun than some of Austin's other novels, it's much more, um, it's not sentimental. I mean, she was writing, it's Austin. Like she's not writing a sentimental, she's actively writing against the technical term, sentimental novel. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's upholding all, she's always upholding reason and duty, right? What is it that, um, that he says in Emma, there's one thing that a man can always do and that is his duty, right? Everybody in Jane Austen is doing the right thing and getting rewarded for it or doing the wrong thing and eventually getting their comeuppance. Um, And that's very satisfying reading. Uh, I think that that's one of the reasons why people love Austen along with the whole comedy of manners thing. Um, But this novel explores... um, emotion and longing and loss and grief a little bit more than some of her other novels and I think it's so compelling uh, because it's Jane Austen. Um, I remember the first time I read this in high school picking it up and expecting something different and being like caught up uh, in 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 the romance and the longing and all of that so I think that that's a big part of it um and I also think that Anne is such a compelling character like she's just so, wonderful and it's it's fun to read about somebody who's just good at life
2: <laughs> so can we <laughs> is it too soon to
0: to get into it no no i have the only well the only other more general question i have about like a prefatory question because this yeah. is kind of a prefatory section like when when we hit page 50 where this section ends which is at the end of chapter six Wentworth the the notion of Wentworth coming back to town yeah. has now been introduced. The stage is so stages so that sort yeah. of you're right so so the the only other question I have and and Heidi you mentioned earlier that you think this is Austin's, this is a different level craft-wise and style-wise mm-hmm. than in the other books. In what ways do you see that being the case? And you don't have to give us great details on that right now. But just from a preparatory perspective, where do you see that? I mean, I think, a preparatory perspective.
1: I think her writing is really tight in this novel. Um, it's a bit shorter than some of her others, and yeah, it has a, a, a more tightly constructed plot, uh, And but still very compelling characters. Um, also, one of the main things that she's known for that I think is almost completely perfect in this novel style-wise is a, a literary term called free indirect discourse, uh, which is a way of overlap, a narrative technique of overlapping Mm -hmm. the third person perspective with a sense or feeling of the first person. So let me think of an example of this for our listeners. Um, like if I was to say, if I was Jane Austen writing about Sean, right? Like Sean picked up his phone, why shouldn't he order Cheetos from the Circle K at 3 a.m.? He had worked hard for his money, right? Like, so I'm not saying Sean thought to himself, why shouldn't he order Cheetos at 3 a.m.? I'm just telling you in the flow what I know about Sean as the narrator. And so when, and and this is a pretty remarkable thing for its time. I mean, we've all read a thousand novels, um, but Austin was a pretty early English novelist. and she's coming from a tradition that was largely epistolary or first person, right? Like characters writing letters to each other. And then somehow then somebody has gathered them together. And then that makes the novel, um, so along comes Jane Austen making this transition from this sentimental novel um like Tristram Shandy or something that's all about uh a sentimental appeal to the to the reader's emotional responses. Um some kind of character is in like terrible dramatic distress and then they have this virtuous overcoming and fine feeling and all that. And then Austen's like I don't want any of that. I want to write about reason. I want to write about convention. I want to write about uh, real people's real lives uh, living in this time and place and what it's like, so she's one of the novelists that makes this transition into realism. And one of the ways she does this is through this free indirect discourse. And I love reading it in this yeah. book. Like I just think it's so beautifully done. It's like a pleasure to read. It is one of those um, those times that I that that when I pay attention to the style, it actually takes me deeper into the novel instead of pulling me out. And um, and and I think she does it the best out of any other novel in this one.
2: Yeah. So I think go ahead. No, Good. I think that's right. And uh, she has she has sort of mastered it at this point. And uh, this relates to a question that I was going to ask you because you said that Anne uh, is a compelling character. Did you say compelling, Heidi?
1: Yeah, I did,
2: and uh, and maybe maybe the free indirect discourse answers it because uh, that's often how we get time with Anne uh, mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. these first six chapters. Uh, so uh, let me back up. That's my question. In these first six chapters, is Anne already a compelling character, or has she just promised to become a compelling character because she says? very little Mm -hmm. Anne talks almost not at all uh in in these first six chapters and um but yeah austin does have these other techniques for making us feel like we know what Anne is like and what she's thinking uh even when we don't hear from her or see her doing things explicitly Mm
1: -hmm. i think that is right because how are you that what it What's so wonderful about Anna? She doesn't say everything she's thinking. She's not like her dad. She's not like the Musgrove. She's not like Mary, right? She's she has this wisdom to her. She has this uh, restraint. Now she had, but she also has a great depth of feeling, like a great well of life experience and feeling and longing. Um, but nobody knows her. Nobody sees her. Um, But she has a very vivid experience of the world, even though she's not she doesn't share it with everybody. And so you have to, as a narrator, figure out how to portray a character like that and make that person interesting uh, without being self indulgent like everybody all around her. And so I think that that I think yes, exactly what you said, Sean. This free indirect discourse that it tells us what and. uh, portrays, conveys, um, and sometimes actually tells us what Anna is thinking and feeling without giving us some kind of inner running commentary or dialogue that's put in quotation marks or distracted by she st- she suddenly thought or said to herself or whatever. It's not cluttered up with that.
0: So I want to read a couple of passages for you and see if they're what you're talking about because I've, in my experience, people do have some, some confusion, but what's the difference between the free and direct discourse and the narrator? Yeah. So on page 39, for example, they're at the Musgroves, and it's talking about... I'm so sorry, real quick. What chapter is this? It's five. Great. So they're at the Musgroves, and the paragraph begins, the Musgroves, like their houses, were in a state of alteration, perhaps of improvement. So that's even. you could even ask that sentence, is that the narrator? Or is that the free and direct discourse? So then if you go on a little further, you get... Anne always contemplated them as some of the happiest creatures of her acquaintance, but still envied them nothing. And I'm jumping ahead. I'm just kind of like, I'm not going to read the whole paragraph because these sentences are quite long. I'm just, I'm distilling it down a little bit, but still envied them nothing, but that seemingly perfect, good understanding and agreement together, that good humored mutual affection of which she had known so little herself with either of her sisters. You skip ahead a couple pages into chapter six. 45 in the Vintage Edition, there's a paragraph that begins, she played a great deal better than either of the Miss Musgroves. Uh, and later on in that um, paragraph, which is a really nice paragraph, it says, "Excepting one short period of her life, she had never since the age of 14, never since the loss of her dear mother, known the happiness of being listened to or encouraged by any just appreciation or real taste. You also get a moment when he's, she's talking to her sister and she's kind of, her sister's like, despairing because she woke up in the morning so sick and no one wanted to pay attention to her and all that kind of stuff and it's just being a classic uh austin like character who everyone just kind of looks down (laughs) upon is annoyed by and it says a little a little farther perseverance in patience and forced cheerfulness on Anne's side produced nearly a cure on mary's so you get these moments like that so are those examples of the narrator or of the free indirect discourse in your opinion
2: Okay, so I think there's a, a technical distinction mm-hmm. uh, or hair splitting that has to happen here. Uh, this this is, is why I bring it up. <laughs> yeah, right. This is This is Austin getting really good at something like free indirect discourse, but almost, and maybe even moving beyond it. So there are moments that are more like what we're calling free indirect discourse, which really just is... Instead of having direct speech where you put in put quotes and then have somebody deliver some Mm -hmm. dialogue, you. The narrator gives you something like reported speech, uh, but then takes out the he said or she said tag. And so you're getting narration that sounds like it has come out of the mouth of one of the characters in a situation. I mean, that's the that is the boilerplate. Free indirect discourse. Uh, but in the hands of a lot of, well, in the hands of authors who use it well, it starts to become something more like what people will call colored narrative, uh, where you start to get narration that uh, sounds less like direct speech or reported speech, but is still colored by the thoughts or emotions of a particular character. Uh, And so I think Austen just moves really freely between those things. Sometimes it's more strictly speaking, free and direct speech or discourse. And and other times it's maybe a looser, uh, more progressive version of that. Uh, But then there are other times that the narrator seems to just be the narrator or maybe even uh, I don't know, uh, aging Jane herself. Like the there's a paragraph, and this is kind of a notorious section. And there's a repeated mention of this a couple chapters later, where the narrator is describing the a uh, poor Richard, the Musgrove son who has di- yeah. died in yeah. the navy, yeah. and uh, and she says. He had, well, she, in fact, yeah, and they know what had, you're looking at? yeah. And the good uh, that the Musgroves had the good fortune to lose him before he reached his 20th year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then later on, he had, in fact, though, his sisters were now doing all they could for him by calling him poor Richard. Been nothing better than a thick headed, unfeeling, unprofitable Dick Musgrove, <laughs> who had never done anything to entitle himself to more than the abbreviation of his name living or dead. Which is so savage, <laughs> yeah. So much for never speak ill of the dead, so right?
1: Oh, funny. <laughs> oh man. So, so that's great. in
0: your in your mind, though. That's just the narrator.
2: I mean, there's we're not offered anybody in the situation that that could believably be.
0: One of the things that I love about Asta here is that she ha- she is so subtle in the shift between. Narrative point of views, yeah, in a way that was transformative, like right. kind of revolutionary. We think about that, we think about it today as being common, um, or or even to the point of being like, you know, now you. Ha- some people would say that your narrative focus has to be distilled to a particular perspective because the subtlety, because that's the way narrative forms voice has evolved but going back to Heidi's point like she's doing something here that people were not doing before or if they were they you know they didn't last she's, yeah, no, she's I mean, building on other people for sure but
2: yeah she's mentioned in the same breath when you talk about this her command of style and form I mean she's mentioned in the same breath as people like Flaubert, uh, who really is the master of masters as far as these things go she um
0: is to me reading Austin next to Hemingway might not seem like a natural uh you know pairing or a natural uh double feature. <laughs> but I find them really interesting because I think they're actually kind of doing interesting things. And I think that Hemingway, as much as he kind of like complained about Austin, I think he was actually trying to respond to some of the stylistic choices that she was making. Like I yeah. think he's trying to be precise in a way that she was playing. And but I so I so anyway, that's that's an aside. But go ahead, Heidi, what were you gonna say?
1: I think to go back to your original question of when is it the narrator and when is it Anne or any other character, I think that that's one of those questions that's like very, very interesting to literary kinds of thinkers. But for many of our listeners who are just reading the novel, like... It's a distinction without a difference, like it yeah. is you can you can tell sometimes this is what the the what we're supposed to trust the narrator, but a character isn't necessarily feeling or thinking it in the moment um like the comment about the commentary about Anne never having anybody to listen to her Anne's not sitting there th- at the instrument thinking to herself, nobody's ever listened to me right. That would actually be a bit detrimental to our perspective of her if she was thinking of herself as a victim in that way. That's our narrator evoking our sympathy for her um, and telling us something really important about her character. Um, And then there's other times when it is that, like, that that free indirect discourse when which is a technical literary term. But for those listeners who that's distracting to them to try to think about whether or not it is or isn't some kind of technical literary term, just let it wash over you. It but it is a pleasure to read to to have this this insight into the quiet characters, which if I were Austin uh, kind of developing this technique and perfecting it in her novels, it's necessary for how for her characterization of these women that she's upholding who are forced into silence by social convention and trying to meet the expectations of the people around them, trying to land a man so that they could be taken care of (laughs) by 3000 a year, right? Like this, So it's how do you get behind mm -hmm. the eyes and into the heart of these characters? She invented something or perfected something that hadn't been done before in writing and turned out to be so effective to making her character characters live and breathe in our memories in a way that they're frankly not living and breathing in the drawing room because they're just being quiet and playing their sweet little songs on the piano forte.
0: I agree with most of what you're saying, but I do think I kind of take issue with the idea that if it's a distraction, ignore it. Because I think that this is like, there's a lot of writing about this book that claims that this is a book that is concerned with what it means to be a reader. Hmm like that Austin was obsessed with the experience of reading. And so when she's playing with narrative voice, she's really concerned with what it's doing to you as a reader. So I would say if it's you feel like it's a distraction.
1: I guess I'm I, saying that our listeners who are reading Persuasion, they don't have to sit with their pens and try to figure out which is the narrator no, and don't which make it is homework. free yeah, indirect yeah. But and direct discourse. And am I reading should... it wrong if I don't?
0: Can't. Sure. No, you're not. I don't think it's yeah. about reading it right or wrong, but I do think that when you, be, when you start to like, Notice yourself thinking about that. Be conscious of it. Like yeah. note that you're conscious yeah, of it like because that. Austin is trying to make you conscious of it. Yeah, I think um, I've got a, I've got a good example. Yeah, I like this that, is
2: and apologies in Trying
0: to be pedantic with you, Heidi. There,
2: I because I definitely I just don't think I have the same page number as anybody. <laughs> but it's what uh, what version are you using? I'm Hold in, it up. I'm in the Norton Critical. Oh yeah, yours is going to be like eleven hundred pages longer than everybody else's yeah, with but small the, font. But the novels at the front. uh this is page 31 for me, <laughs> uh, but it's chapter six and the about the middle of the chapter and the paragraph, it's a small one, right after we've been hearing about how all of the, the different members of the two Musgrove households come to Anne with their problems and complaints and that she really can't do much to alleviate any of these problems. And there's this small paragraph, how was Anne to set all these matters to rights? She could do little more than listen patiently, soften every grievance, and excuse each to the other, give them all hints of the forbearance necessary between such near neighbors, and make those hints broadest which were meant for her sister's benefit. And it's this really short paragraph that's thrown in between some longer ones, uh, but it's a great example of this kind of blurred narrative ground where the narrator is simply telling us something about Anne, but She is using or she implies or suggests that this might be the very kind of verbiage Anne would speak to herself. So we get a sense of what Anne is like from the outside because the narrator is telling us. But uh, we also get a sense of what Anne is like on the inside because there's this suggestion that these are this is the form in which Anne might articulate these thoughts to herself. Uh, and it, it it blows by, and you don't have to stop and analyze what's happening in that paragraph to get to come away with that sense.
0: This is a book that it was super important to like twentieth century literary criticism. So like it it it's been it's like this the academia. But also beyond academia, like pop literature culture has written so much about this. I mean, doesn't Virginia Woolf even write about this book in a room of one's own or like?
1: She does. Yes. A- and she loved this novel.
0: And she, I think she's a big reason why it gets introduced into the sort of scholarship consciousness, if you will. Well, Which was even... big
2: because she wasn't always nice about Jane Austen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which probably, I mean, yeah. Or a lot of other people yeah well there's this there's a there's a critic who um this is just on wikipedia actually but there's a essay called persuasion forms of estrangement by a walton litz and he he refers to i think he's even talking about virginia wolf here but he says that he he refers to the pervasive presence of Anne elliott's consciousness in this book what do you think of that phrase, the pervasive presence of Anne Elliot's consciousness? Because it's that's getting into, it's one way of describing this idea of the free and direct discourse. Does, and then a follow-up on that, do the other books focus so precisely on a single character's perspective as this one does with Anne's?
1: Man, those are really good questions, David. I think that that um, phrase... Pervasive presence of Anne Elliot's consciousness—is that right? Yeah, I think that's right, and I think we have to, in reading this novel, as you point out, David. One of the brilliant aspects of this novel is that we see something in Anne, which is this depth of humanity, of wisdom, but also of of feeling. And vivid life experience um, that nobody else in the whole novel ever sees. And because they are seeing a well behaved, dutiful Mm. Georgian lady who is doing everything right and being completely overlooked all the time. So then, but we see her. And we see this melancholy and this goodness, right? Um, and and we want for her what she is can't even want for herself. So there's three consciousnesses, right? What other people are seeing in Anne, what Anne is doing in her life, and then what we want for her, and what we see in her. Um, and and it's all Uh, mediated by the narrative voice, which to your point, David, that makes that narrative voice of supreme importance in the novel in a way that matters a lot for what Jane Austen is doing, which is showing the inner life of people, the mystery versus the manners, right? To use that um, Flannery O'Connor phrase.
0: So is Anne's consciousness, the pervasive consciousness, if you will, the access point of the conflict between duty and desire in this book? I think so, yeah. Is sure. that true <laughs> of every book though?
1: Yeah, I mean, probably, but because the uh because this particular novel is uh presenting a society in which mystery and manners are utterly separate right mm-hmm. um then that access point becomes even more important than it would be in a novel say written right now and in which uh, about like social media presence or something right like that right yeah. um so that that access point is really important in order to make any novel like this work yeah, and and Austin just gets better and better at that. The other character who I think does that to go back to your original question really well is Eleanor Dashwood.
0: Yeah, *Sense hmm. and
2: Sensibility*. Sean, what were you going to say? Uh, well, at this point, I'll mostly it? mostly what I can do is agree with <laughs> agree with Hetty. Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, Fanny in Mansfield Park. Is a little bit that way also, uh, but there Agreed. are, but there are some other characters that the narrator is more interested in, and and maybe it's partly because the novel's longer and so the feeling is more diluted, uh, but it does feel like there are a few other characters that get more time and attention, and this really is the the novel of Anne's interiority, uh, in a way that that even that one isn't.
0: Okay, so this is a great way for me to transition to making a confession. I have a hard time getting into this book. Like I find starting Pride and Prejudice and like you're dropped into it right away, right away. Yeah. Um I ha- and I find so so I find it interesting that she begins without introducing Anne for like at Alicia she even mentioned in the first chapter. She <laughs> might be mentioned at the end. But we don't we don't get a lot of access to her for several pages. Now I know that this is a book that is consumed on the one hand with the manners, with the traditions, with the culture, with the rules and the guidelines and all the different things that she's describing um, in, in kind of getting into this family's situation. But given this pervasive consciousness and pervasive consciousness, it's interesting to me how long it takes us to access it or to be, given access to that consciousness. And as Sean said, she's not even, she hardly speaks. We get the free indirect discourse. We get access to her mindset uh, and and what's going on around her, but she barely speaks in these first six chapters. So do you feel differently? Like, is this just a me thing? Like, I'm just having that, you know, my, I'm just finding it a little bit. Like, I enjoy it. I've read it before, but I've also started it a couple of times mm-hmm. and the first two chapters or so don't have not like, they don't capture me. And so no. I kind of have to push through them. Um, and this, and then like last year I started it. And then when we decided to do it on the sh- do it on the show, I was like, yeah, I'll just wait, which, uh, you know, I probably would have done anyway, but you know, point stands nonetheless. So I'm just curious what you guys think of that. Is that just me kind of uh, being, being lazy and missing something or is, or do you think that it is at, that she is maybe, trying to do something different than she does at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, where it's almost like quippy at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, right? There's yeah.
2: comedy from the first sentence. Well, there's, I mean, there is a, there's a, a more subtle kind of comedy in the opening chapter here. Uh, if we get this narcissist. You're who saying loves I'm to, not subtle? <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> uh, we get this narcissist who loves to read about himself in this big book and add things to it about himself. Uh, That's that's quirky. It's not it's not on the level of high, high art comedy, uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. uh, Right. Yeah. Frustrating each other. But then but I do think Austin is trying to do something different because what she pulls off is get. Gets us immediately to feel the way that everyone else does about Anne Anne is invisible. Uh, We don't see her. We think very little about her. Her name's in the book, so I mean, we read her name. And uh, if you're if you're obsessed with the book, you can't help it. But then, mm-hmm. again, that yeah, as you say, that's it again for a couple of pages. Uh, and so I think it's this nice uh, f- marriage of form and content, where uh, Anne is missing from the story uh, largely in the beginning, not because she's actually inconsequential. We find out how essential she she is. We find out in these chapters how essential she has been to the running of the household and how she's the one doing most of the noble duties of the family. Uh, But no one else notices how important her presence is or even her presence sometimes. Uh, Like there's that conversation with the, the solicitor and his daughter, Mrs. Clay and Anne and Every time a new person speaks in the conversation, the narrator treats it like a surprise. Missus Clay said this, for she was also present. And then finally, Anne yeah. says something at the very end, uh, and it just slipped in there. Oh, yeah! Also, Anne was at the table. Also, our protagonist was <laughs> yeah, there.
0: How do you What do you think about all this? Before we got to wrap this up here soon. All but. Right.
1: Um, so, I am going to make absolutely no comment about your reading. Because um, I think that there are books that appeal to us and books that we have to work to love and books that we shouldn't love and books that, you know, like reading is such a mystery. So I find this one very, very compelling from the very beginning. Um, And, but I think if we look at the first lines, Mm-hmm. Of say Pride and Prejudice, right? It is the truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife? That's the conflict of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the story, and mm-hmm. the, right, like um, it's
0: quippy. You could put it yeah, on a pencil case, right. which I sell in the it's bookstore, funny, <laughs>
1: right? Um, and it's brilliant. Like yeah. there's a reason why that's a much remembered and beloved first line of a novel. Yeah, syntactically,
0: uh, even it's like poetry.
1: Yes, yeah. it just flows, and it has this funny, but also this like kind of um, this commentary also within it um, that we're obviously picking up on. And Mm -hmm. uh, I... Yes, so that, that first line sets the tone for the whole novel. The first line of persuasion is much more subtle, right? Sir Walter Elliot of Kellynch Hall in Somersetshire was a man who, for his own amusement, never took up any book but the Baronetage. There he found occupation for an idle hour and consolation in a distressed one. And then it goes on, right? Yeah, the first, first in,
0: sentence is a long,
1: it's in a in Faulknerian. A sense, and in a sense, that is the conflict of the story.
2: Mm hmm right?
1: That there, that Anne has been begotten by a man who cares nothing for anybody but himself and who, where inheritance and position is king. And she is completely missing from her own story for a good long time until all that is explained and understood. Yeah. And, and so in a, I I read a blog post about this years ago that said, in Persuasion, Jane Austen sings rather low and rather quietly, right? It has the same kind of depth to it, but in in another way, a much more mature first line of a novel, uh, because in order to understand anything about Anne, you have to understand that these are the things that rule her existence from the very beginning, so much so that in a book written about her, can't really even mention her until we know that these are, this is the surroundings of her life.
0: That's good. That's helpful. It's interesting that like, I don't know that, a, I don't know that a, a novel could get published today with this beginning.
2: Right. Well, there was a, uh, maybe it was more like a decade ago, I was going to say a couple of years ago, uh, somebody sent the opening chapters to all of Austin's novels to major publishers, with uh you know different made up titles attached mm-hmm. and uh, they all got rejection letters but not rejection letters saying this is clearly Jane Austen <laughs> right <laughs> but and uh, it was and it was a, a dig at the whole industry but rejection letters just saying uh you know this is this is not quite what we're looking for here are the problems with your style or uh, you know uh, you haven't. You've buried the lead, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean that experiment has been done, and it has been uh, proved and, true.
0: And most of those letters probably came from like the person who reads the slush pile yeah. on the editor's desk. Intern, so like a twenty-four-year-old yeah. or younger person who's been given a set of things to weed out. Yeah, and and there's like yeah, I mean the, you, you read the stuff. If you read the the advice that college professors give to people who want to apply to an MFA they talk about how like the first paragraph is everything like if it doesn't look like there's an energy to the first paragraph in your writing I'm not going to keep reading because I've got 300 applications for the two the three spots at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop right and so there's a the the public the publishing world puts demands on like the process of it asks things of writers to get published that Austin mercifully wasn't having to deal with it, but also just didn't have bother with right? right i mean it was a different world but also she was you know not cons- well i mean maybe she was consumed with being famous but it wasn't part of the equation right and and like yeah. the whole process was different
2: um well okay and, so and as we've already kind of noticed this is this is a novel that she's writing at the end of her writing career such as it was mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. but there's less pressure when you have when you're an established author yeah uh, to please in those ways right yeah sean have you read don DeLillo? uh yeah you read white
0: noise yeah you gotta watch the movie speaking of people who just do at a certain point do not care (laughs) yeah that's right yeah uh heidi have you read don DeLillo white noise under what is it called um you've
1: recommended him to me several times and i have never picked him up yet
0: but i don't know if you'd like him but (laughs) maybe i would be curious to know Reading
1: that makes is want to like
2: Heidi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is yeah. that is
1: very true. It just really, really is. <laughs> so you can never, like, it's not bad reading to say, this isn't, I don't know, I don't love it. Like, And it's not great reading to say, oh, I love something. Like, love isn't <laughs> the, you know, love and appreciation are two different things, and mm. that is okay.
0: And that's why you read things multiple times. Yeah. Because... And you read things with other people because you Mm -hmm. miss stuff and you talk about it and they bring it out and and all that. Uh, Speaking of reading with other people, we are going to continue this book over the next, uh, the rest of this month, uh, a little bit into February. Um, And then Sean, you're going to be taking a little hiatus from us while your, your wife has uh, brings, brings a baby into the world and you uh, offer a helping hand. I assume you'll be helping.
2: Yeah. I mean, God willing. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll yeah. I'll relieve Tim just in time exactly. for him to do the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. So then Tim will be back for
0: the Net and Yahoos, uh, which we're talk, discussing next. And Sean will then return to let Tim go to on on paternity leave from Club <laughs> Street. <laughs> um what should people look out for in this next section? Heidi, I'll let you go first and then we'll let Sean go.
1: I think more uh insight into Anne. The conflict of this story is not whether or not Anne gets married. It's a different kind of conflict. Um, the issue at stake for Anne is not her marriage, the same way it is, you know, for um, for Elizabeth Bennett. If if they don't, if those girls don't get married, the estate is entailed away. Right? There's 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 a pressure. Anne is already a spinster. It's no longer necessarily expected that she's going to get married. Everybody knows that. And so it's okay if she does or doesn't. The thing that's at stake for Anne is her happiness. And and that sets this novel apart in a way um, that I think makes the stakes more interesting to the reader than if it is just about whether or not she's going to get married to a guy who's going to be able to provide 3000 a year in an estate in Derbyshire or whatever. Um, and that So we're looking for conflicts related to that in her life. And we're also looking for conflicts related to her voice or lack of voice and whether she is seen or not seen. And and those are the the stakes that are set up um, by Austin um, in a different way than her other heroines. And so look for that and let the pathos of that wash over, I think, us as readers um this is a novel that explores whether or not women can be happy um and not wait can they yeah yes yes we can read the book to find out (laughs) read the book to find out um and and i think that that's what makes the novel have this twinge of melancholy that some of her
2: other ones lack
0: sean what are you looking for or what should you what do you recommend people look for
2: uh, all of that, and then maybe on the on the macro scale, uh, more comment on what it what it means to be and the novel I think has used the word already now, but what it means to be a gentleman and and this next episode we'll probably get to throw around the term objective correlative because uh, the question of what it means to be a gentleman doesn't just Everybody apply- take a shot <laughs> boom. <laughs> You thought you were going to leave this one sober. The question of what it means to be a gentleman isn't exclusively applied to men in this novel. There's a a, a social and even a larger cultural and natural question about what constitutes nobility and quality and virtue, uh, and does it have to come from this or that place, and how is it demonstrated uh, that will continue to play out over the course of the novel.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the word virtue and nobility, because those I- the ideas of what is virtuous and what is noble are brought up very directly in in this first section. We haven't touched on it yet, but that's yeah. what we'll probably talk about the rest of the book. <laughs> can, can women be happy? And what does it mean to be a gentleman, especially if you're a woman? Um, <laughs> so those are good questions for us as we're going. Heidi, what were you going to say?
1: I was just going to say I really like what Sean said and specifically looking at that with the Musgroves versus uh, the Elliots And the Crofts. And the Crofts, exactly.
0: Not to be confused with the Haley Crofts. Sure.
1: Indeed, who, as, as everybody knows, are a high standard of
0: nobility and <laughs> virtue. Exactly, exactly. Okay, well, this has been fun. This is going to be a great time talking about this book. So for next time, yeah. we'll be reading to the end of uh, volume one. I believe they're called volumes, right? Not books. Uh, the end of yep, that's uh, right. uh, yeah, volume one. So it's a little longer section than we did this time, but um, also a little bit more time to read since our last recording. So thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thank you uh, to everyone who supports the show over on Substack. Remember, it's closereads.substack.com and we are just about to record our uh, Till We Have Faces Q&A episode. So the last episode on that, on on the read, on the actual book is up. You can post your questions over on the thread over on Substack if you've been taking part in that. Thanks to everyone who... uh, Gave a gift subscription for Christmas. We saw a bunch of those come through. So thanks for that. Thanks for your support. Nice. Don't forget to uh, keep uh, Sean and Tim's wives in your thoughts and prayers as they... Uh, entering yeah,
1: into their confinements. they're entering into their <laughs>
0: confinements, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're coming to the stretch run. That's right. To use another metaphor. you mm. um, go. So yeah. I don't well, know
1: which is worse between the two of those.
0: The Not two metaphors.
1: Confining a pregnant woman. <laughs>
0: and you know, it's interesting. The stretch run and the confining are like the opposite yeah. metaphors to be used for the same thing. So, sure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right. Well, Heidi, Sean, this is fun. Thanks so much. For Heidi White, for Sean Johnson. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading.